you have your Bible, go ahead and turn it to uh, Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8. We are going to pick up there. Last time we got through chapter 7, but we didn't do the practical application thing at the end, so I'm going to run through that and then we'll get into chapter 8. But at the end of every chapter or section we've been covering, we've been doing the hearing and teaching aspect of that just so you can have some sort of, here's what we covered, here's how it applies. So last week we did, two weeks ago we did 7, and we'll just look at 7, 1 through 17 and the practical application. So chapter 7, verses 1 through 4 starts with the four angels holding back, or the angels holding back the four winds. And the thing that we should appreciate from that is that angels are involved in our world. We might not think about angels as much as some other religious groups, but we should. And Hebrews 1.14 says they're ministering spirits sent forth to be servants to those of us who are heirs of salvation. I don't know what all that means. Most people try to explain that by saying they're involved in our lives providentially. I'll take that, but just know that they're involved in our lives. And for more on angels, see the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Luke talks more about angelic involvement in human affairs than anybody else in the New Testament. But Revelation would probably be in second place as they, as the book talks about their involvement. Second, God never destroys the righteous with the wicked. So in chapter 6, there's all of this destruction as the seals begin to be opened. But in chapter 7, you have those that are sealed. The 144,000, or we could say all of the redeemed, are sealed. And this just communicates that they won't be harmed in the destruction. God never destroys the righteous with the wicked. It's a principle from 2 Peter 2, where Peter says, God knows how to deliver the righteous in times of trouble. And Revelation 7, 1 through 17 helps us with that. John 17, 17 is just, God sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. God sets us apart. We won't be destroyed because of that. Next, don't remove your seal. The 144,000 are sealed in their forehead, and that'll make sense in chapter 9 today when we get there, and it talks about those that will avoid destruction because they have the seal, and Revelation 7 says the sealed are the saved. If you're sealed with God's spirit and with God's stamp of approval, you've got nothing to worry about. 2 Timothy 2, 19 says the foundation of the Lord stands sure, having this seal. The Lord knows those that are his. Let everyone that names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And so, if you're a faithful Christian, child of God, don't remove your seal. All the saved make it home. I think that's what the 144,000 represent. Last time we talked about this, there was some confusion, I guess, about what are the views on who the 144,000 represent, especially between the fourth and fifth option that we talked about. I'm just going to briefly cover that again so there's no confusion. Some people believe the 144,000 compose the saved of the Old and the New Covenant. So these are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, everybody under the Old Covenant, as well as faithful Christians. Some people believe that's the 144,000. The fifth option that we talked about is, in Revelation 7, the saved represent Christians that have obeyed the gospel down throughout the ages, and they represent that number. And I think that's the right interpretation. Now, somebody says, well, what about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? They're saved. They'll be in heaven, too. I just don't think that's the focus of the book of Revelation, primarily to talk about all the saved everywhere, as much as it's talking about Christians. And John even says they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. So I think the focus of the 144,000 is zeroing in on Christians who've obeyed the gospel. Though everybody who's ever been faithful to God under whatever covenant they've been under is going to go to heaven. So... It doesn't really matter in the end, I guess, what you do with that. Let Revelation teach you how to worship. You'll see some of that in chapter 7. And then we need to be those that look forward to what's coming. All right, now we're ready for chapter 8. Unless there's any other questions on chapter 7. Anything else? All right, great. Seven seals. So John's given us six seals so far. And 
Today we'll look at the seventh seal and then the beginning of the seven trumpets. We're down for chapter 9. There are only six trumpets that will be sounded. You've got to wait until about chapter 11 for the actual sounding of the seventh trumpet. All right, so we haven't met for two weeks. Took some time off for BDS and for the potluck that we had last week, so there wasn't any class. We're picking up in Revelation chapter 8. Hopefully we'll get through chapter 9. Just to remind us, we discussed the introduction to the book, Seven Churches, Jesus' reign in heaven, and then these seals being opened. In chapter 8, we pick up with the seventh and final seal, and then the seven trumpets are blasted. So a key number in the book of Revelation is the number what? Seven. Seven, yes. Seven churches, seven seals, seven trumpets, and eventually there'll be seven bowls of wrath when you get to chapter 16. Now, these seven things, like the bowls, the trumpets, and the seals, some people have said it works this way in the book of Revelation. All of these, or these three things, trumpets, seals, and bowls, represent the same punishment. It's just being told from different vantage points. You've seen a football game before, a basketball game, or even a movie. Same scene, different camera angle. Some people say that's what's going on in Revelation. Every time John recapitulates something taking place, he's just talking about it from a different angle, so to speak. These aren't different punishments or different outpourings of God's wrath. Um, others think that maybe these are different punishments and that the punishments escalate as you read through the book. And I think that's right. I think that there are some similarities between the bowls and the seals and the trumpets, but I don't think they're the exact same thing. And hopefully, as we work through it, we'll see some of that. John says um, repeatedly that some of these things are going to happen soon, and so we should appreciate these things are dealing with the judgment on Rome. But don't think of the book of Revelation in a purely chronological mindset, that all of these things happen in this order. John kind of jumps around. Sometimes he's dealing with the future. Sometimes he's dealing with things that's going to happen right then and there. You know that's true because in chapter 7, you read about all the redeemed in heaven. Has that happened yet? Everybody go like this. Or you missed it. Yeah, no. It hadn't happened yet. Thank God, right? So sometimes John looks into the future and he says, hey, this is what's coming. Other times he talks about things happening right then and there. So don't look for necessarily linear line of focus. And then appreciate we're venturing into some of the deeper symbolic language of the book of Revelation. But don't give up. Stick with me. All right? It kind of gets more challenging. And some people that might have thought, oh, this is going great. are going to start thinking, what on earth is John talking about now? Okay? Don't quit. Just remember if you're saved and sealed, heaven will be your home. You're a part of the redeemed. All of the wrath and punishment that John describes is not aimed at faithful people of God. And if that's all you get out of these 22 chapters, you've gotten a decent amount. All right, so let's start in Revelation chapter 8. I'm going to read the first five verses. All right. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and the seven trumpets that were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. All right, so the seventh seal, this is the last one. There were six. John stopped in chapter 7 for a praise break talking about that redeemed and then he says there is uh, the seventh seal open and then what happens after that seal is open yeah there's silence in heaven for the bible says how long half an hour what do y'all think that's all about saints were 
praying. Okay, so some people, I'm going to have a list in a minute of interpretations that people have said that it refers to. Ms. Winnetta says the saints were praying. Some people think that's what it refers to, that God, and you see that in 2 through 5, heaven was silent so that God could hear the prayers of the saints. That's one possibility. Handy? Dramatic pause. Dramatic pause is also in the list. Some people think this was done for dramatic effect by John, that all of this information has been given, all of these great things have happened, and now there's just a time of silence. Anybody else? Yeah, since things been uh, unfolding before him, and he's waiting as they unfold. Okay, so maybe John's waiting as things unfold before him. All of those are good, possible interpretations. Here are a few more, okay? All right, so some people say that this is a pause of rest. John's resting, heaven rest, everything's quiet after the worship scene of chapter 7. Possibility. Suspicion, suspension of divine revelation in the world. So John's getting all this information, and then there's just a pause as nothing's taking place, nothing's being communicated to John at this time. God listening to prayers is potentially one. The only problem I have with that is that God can always hear his people. 1 Peter 3, 12, God's ears are open to our prayers, eyes over the righteous. So I don't know that God needs silence in order to hear people pray, but that's what some people have said in light of the context. <laughs> Awe and dramatic calls kind of go together. But I like this one. The last one is the reversal of creation. And what does that mean? Well, how did God create the world? He spoke and these things happened. Revelation 8 and 9 is going to have creation being destroyed and upended. And so God's silent. Some people have said there's this reversal of creation idea going on. The one I think is probably most probable, though I'm not crazy about any of these, nor do I think we can know for certain, is the punishment of nations. Throughout the Bible, when God's about to pour out his wrath on nations, the Bible says everything went quiet. Isaiah 47 and verse 5. We're probably more familiar with this one, though, because we sing a song about it. Habakkuk 2 and verse 20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth do what? Yeah, that happens right after God tells Habakkuk, Babylon and Judah are going to be destroyed for their wickedness. So there is this theme throughout the Bible. When God gets ready to pour out his wrath on nations, everything's to go silent and prepare for the judgment of God. In light of what follows, the silence in Revelation 8 and 9, I think that's potentially our best option. We don't really know for sure, but either way, that's what we have. All right, so then after that, that you have the seven angels, and they receive seven trumpets. These angels are part of the panoply of divine servants. They're given a special task here, and we'll discuss more about what that is in the verses that follow. Now go to verse 3. Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne of God. Okay, so you have the prayers of the saints, and there's this altar of incense, and it's probably dealing with the Old Testament golden altar where people were to offer worship to God, Exodus 30, 1 through 10, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints. Where have we seen this connected before? Saints, altar, prayers in the book of Revelation. Where was that at previously? Silence that Lehman for a half an hour, Revelation. <laughs> yeah, so go back to Revelation 6, 9 through 11. You remember the souls under the altar? And they're crying out. You remember that? Revelation 6, 9 through 11 says there were souls that had been slain and they were under the altar and they were crying out, Oh God, how long before you avenge our blood on those that persecute us? And they're told to wait a little while. Their brethren are going to suffer some more. But here's your white robe in the meantime. So saints and the altar kind of go hand in hand in the book. They're near to the heart of God. They're close. And now what you have in Revelation chapter 8 are these 
prayers going along with this incense. And where have we seen that before? Go back to Revelation chapter 5. And can we get somebody to read verse 8 for us? Nice and, <clears throat> nice and loud. Now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a heart and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Alright, so here we have it. We have the prayers of the saints. That's what they're called in Revelation 5.8. And now this angel has this censer with the prayers of the saints, and it comes before the throne of God. Once the prayers come into God's throne room, what's the next thing that happens? Revelation 8 and verse 5. Once the prayers get into God's area, his arena, once he receives them, what do you find in verse 5? And what is that all about? I know you're reading this verse and you're thinking, well, maybe God heard somebody's prayers last night because of the weather, right? Well, this is what happens in Revelation 8 and verse 5. Peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightnings, and an earthquake. It's just the way that the Bible says God's about to act. Sometimes you find this in Scripture. In Exodus 19, you remember Moses is up receiving the law, and the Bible says in Exodus 19 that there were thunder, thunderings and lightnings, peals of thunder, always in that order, too, in the Bible. You find that, that type of terminology. Psalm 18, 7 through 13, and Psalm 77 and verse 18 communicates the same idea. So this means God's about to act. Verse 5, question. What in this context is causing God to move and act? Why the thunder, why the flashes of lightning, and why an earthquake? What is causing God to act? The prayers. The prayers of who? The saints. Prayers of the saints. What does this tell you and tell me about prayer? There's going to be some wild stuff that happens in chapter 8 and chapter 9. And if you're right on what you just said, and I think you are, what motivates all of that activity? Say it again. Prayers. The prayers of the saints. What does that tell you and me about prayer? Is powerful, somebody says. That's true. James 5.16 says, Confess your faults one to another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. Mm -hmm. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man does what? Avails much. Newer translations say something like, Has great power as it's working. Okay, so prayer is powerful. What else does this tell you and me about prayer, though? Prayer is powerful. We say that a lot. I believe that's true. And I believe this verse <laughs> teaches that reality, that prayer is powerful. But what else? <laughs> God hears us when we pray. Yes, that's right. Anybody else? God responds. And God responds mightily on our behalf. Look at Luke 18. Luke 18 is a parable that Jesus taught about prayer. Luke 18, 1, Jesus taught his disciples people should always pray, never lose heart. He says there was a widow in the city and a judge. The judge didn't fear God or care about men. The widow continued coming to him, avenge me of my adversary. He wouldn't at first. But afterwards, the widow kept troubling him, and he says, Let me avenge this widow of her adversary, lest by her continual coming, she wearied me or weighed me down. And then what does verse 7 and verse 8 say? Somebody read that for us. It's about prayer. And shall God not avenge his only way to cry out day and night to him? Though he bears long with them, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes... Will he really find faith on the earth? So Luke 18, Jesus is saying this widow comes to a cranky judge and eventually he just gives in and gives her what she wants. When Jesus comes, will he find people like that? Do we pray like God can hear us, will hear us, and act on our behalf? The saints in Revelation did. They cried out to God. They begged God. Revelation 6, 9 through 11, God help us do something. And then heaven starts roaring and rumbling, and God's about to act on their behalf. Why? Why is God going to act on their, on their behalf? Because they did what? They prayed. That's all there is to it. Because they prayed. Yes, ma'am. Does, does it also mean that 
I don't think that's a bad idea. I'm just not sure that's what's going on here. Like I said, I think the silence probably refers to God's judgment on the nations, but solitude and worshiping God are great ideas for sure. Yeah. So they pray, God acts. This is what um, Thomas Torrance said about prayer. He said, what are the real master powers behind the world? And what are the deeper secrets of our destiny? Here's the astonishing answer. The prayers of the saints and the fire of God, more potent, more powerful than all the dark and mighty powers let loose in the world, more powerful than anything else, is the power of prayer set ablaze by the fire of God cast upon the earth. The prayers of the saints and the fire of God move the whole course of the world. They are the most potent, most disturbing, most revolutionary, most terrifying powers that the world knows. Would to God that we in Christ's church really understood a prayer like that. Do you believe that? That if you pray to God, not just that prayer is powerful, that's true. That God hears us when we pray, that's true. But that heaven will do something that wasn't probably previously on the schedule just because you as a child of God asked. That's what prayer says. Prayer moves God. Now, God knows everything and God has plans, but he'll move those plans in your favor and in mine if we pray. And Revelation teaches that. Russell? I think it also teaches that, that the way we pray has a part in it all, too. James says pray without doubting. Yeah. Uh, if you pray thinking, it ain't going to happen anyway, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. It's probably not going to go very far. We do need to have a strong confidence in what we pray about. And if we don't think it's going to happen... It won't. But we also need to pray persistently. I think sometimes we feel like, well, I prayed about this. And maybe we give ourselves credit. Hey, I prayed 30 days. People prayed to God in the Bible for things for hundreds of years. And that doesn't mean God always gives us what we want. But it does mean he sustains us and brings us through. And we should continue. Even if he says no, we should continue to pray and cry out before God because he does want to hear from us. And that makes a difference. All right. Here are just a few passages on prayer before we move on from this point. Romans 12 and verse 12 says... Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, continue steadfastly in prayer. First Peter 5, 7. Casting all your what on God because he cares for you. Cares. Old King James, new translations, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares about you. Are we doing that? Or are we holding back some of our anxieties and giving God what we consider to be the big stuff? If it's not worth praying about, it's not worth worrying about. These Christians are praying to God, and yet God says, okay, I'm going to do something because you're praying to me about it. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 says he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or even think. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, the famous verse on prayer says that we should pray without ceasing. All right, what do you think this would mean to the seven churches? This idea that God's moving on their behalf as soon as he hears their prayers. What do you think the churches that John's writing to, that get the book of Revelation, they read this passage just like we're reading it. What do you think this would say to them in their suffering? Relax, God's got it. Yeah, what else? What else? You're suffering, you're praying, you're crying out to God, the Romans are still persecuting you, and then you get this in the mail from John. What would this say to you about prayer? There will be an end to your suffering. There will be an end to your suffering. Keep praying. Psalm 65 and verse 2, the psalmist says, O God, to you who hears prayers, to you will all flesh come. It would say to those Christians, you're not bowing your head in vain. Heaven is concerned and is involved. Keep praying. Keep reaching up to God. Keep crying out because he does hear you. 
Has anybody in here ever prayed before and felt like God wasn't listening? Doesn't mean you became an atheist or an unbeliever, but have you ever prayed before, I mean, really poured out your heart and felt like God didn't hear you? But he does. And there's nothing unnatural about feeling that. But Revelation 18 says, Revelation 8, excuse me, 18 probably says something cool about prayer too, by the way. But Revelation 8 says, God does hear people, his people when they pray. God is listening. And not only that, God is moving. Sometimes I pray and I think, okay, I'm sure God heard me, but I really would like to see some signs. I'd really like to see something start moving. And the bottom line is God is working oftentimes ahead of schedule, and we just need to learn how to trust him. Yes, Russell. Sometimes when he doesn't answer, he's still working. Yeah. Maybe he just said no. Yeah, that's right. God doesn't have to give me what I want to be my God, and God knows better than I do. But it still helps me to know that he does hear what I'm saying and that he is involved in my life. Whether I get what I want or not, sometimes I just want a response. I just want to know that I've been heard. And Revelation teaches that God does. Okay, now let's get to the seals. Revelation 8, 6 through 13. Can we get a volunteer to read that who hasn't read already? Revelation 8, 6 through 13. Now next week, I'm going to be in a gospel meeting. Neil's teaching in my place. And um, I promised him that I would get through chapter 9. And so if we don't, it's your fault. <laughs> we got to make it happen, guys, okay? Because he's preparing for chapter 10. Um, I'm sure he'd be able to pick up from wherever, but we got to press on. So somebody, Revelation 8, 6 through 13, please. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. It was hurled down on earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up, and all of the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many of the people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that the earth then turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because the trumpet blast about to be sounded on the other three angels. All right, one more time, just so we got it in our minds. What prompted all of this that we just read about? What brought that about, everybody? Prayers. The prayers of the Christians. All right, just want to make sure we're clear. First thing happens is you've got these trumpets being blown. Question, throughout the Bible, what do we know about trumpets? What do you know about trumpets? What do you find in the Bible about the use of trumpets? If we can, let's start in the Old Testament, and we'll work our way to the New. What do we know about trumpets? Anybody? Sound of warning. Yeah, so I think the first time we really key in on the use of trumpets is in Numbers chapter 10, the first 10 verses. Moses is told to make two silver trumpets, and the people are going to use these for various exercises. Numbers 10 and verse 3 says you use them to call people together. Numbers 10 and verse 4, call the heads of the tribes together. Numbers 10, 5, and 6, move the tribes along on their journey. Sometimes you sound an alarm for war. Numbers 10 and verse 9, and you could use it. They blow these trumpets, and everybody would get together for the feast days. Numbers 10 and verse 10. So it was used for all of that. You remember the walls of Jericho, how all of that worked out. Now, what about in the New Testament? What do we know about trumpets? We sing a lot about it, so this should kind of be the dead shall rise. First Thessalonians 4.16 says, The trumpet will sound, the trumpet of God is called, and the dead are going to get up. And 1 Corinthians 15.52 says a similar thing. So here we go. We've got these trumpets being blasted. 
The trumpets of Revelation are used in this way. They announce God's judgment on the world. That's the purpose of these trumpets. Now, I don't believe, and you might have a study Bible or some commentaries that are going to tell you, yeah, John's fast-forwarded, and now these judgments being poured out are about the end of the world. I don't think that's what these trumpets are about. The prayers of the saints in the first century brought these trumpets about. And here's the other thing. The final trumpet that's going to blast, 1 Thessalonians 4.16, that Ms. Leanne mentions, there's only one of those, the trumpet of God. How many do we have here? We've got seven. And so I think it's symbolic for the punishment and judgment that's coming on, on the Christians or the Romans that persecuted Christians. Here's another question. If trumpets signal warning, sometimes they do, Christians, are they going to be punished in these trumpet blasts? Do you think God's after the Christians in these seven trumpet blasts? Shake or not? Yes or no? No. All right. So who's going to suffer because of these trumpet blasts and the punishment that goes out? The wicked, who would be the what? Starts with row and with men. Romans, right. All right, great. All right, so the Romans. Here's what I want to know, though. Here's what's shocking. Christians aren't going to be destroyed. Romans will. If trumpets are for warning, why would God be sending a warning to the Romans? What's that all about? Why would God do that? He's trying to get men to repent. Get who to repent? Anybody. That's right. The trumpets that you read about, really all the judgments, the seals, the trumpets, and later the bowls of wrath, are really, even the Romans, as wicked as they were, killing Christians. Historians tell us that Nero, 30 years before this, lit Christians on fire alive and used them as candles to light his garden. Even as <laughs> wicked as that was, God was using these things to hopefully draw them to repentance, not ultimately to destroy them, but to bring them to repentance. The end of chapter 9 is going to bear that out. Now, after you refuse repentance, judgment is coming. Even these plagues, even these punishments are designed to bring about repentance. What does this tell you about God? God of second chances. What else? Merciful and gracious. Merciful and gracious. Who does God want to destroy? Nobody. Nobody. But if his hand's forced, it eventually goes there. So this isn't about ultimate destruction, but it's about punishment. So the first trumpet in Revelation 8 and verse 7, what happens when that trumpet is sounded? Just read the Bible. That's all. Just tell me what the verse says. What is it? Hellfire. Hellfire mixed with blood. Okay, and then these things were thrown where? On the earth. Okay, um, what does this remind you of from the Old Testament? What scene does this remind you of? The plagues. That's good in general, but yes, the plagues. Which one? The plague of hell. Yeah, the seventh plague of Exodus chapter uh, number nine, and that fire and judgment comes down. How many people, or how, how much of the world is destroyed in this? What does he say in Revelation 8 verse 7? A third. Now, what you're going to find in chapter 8 is people aren't really the target. First, God deals with the world, the natural terrain. And this is a way of saying God's going to hit Rome's economy. He doesn't strike people first. Remember, he doesn't want to destroy humanity. Now, they might be, you know, kind of the secondary uh, recipient of God's punishment. But in Revelation chapter 8, first, you're going to read about animals. You'll read about land. You'll read about grass. God doesn't want to destroy the people. He wants them to repent, just like he did with the plagues. If you read the plagues in the book of Exodus, when does death actually come to Egyptians? What was that? But the end, the final plague. First, I'm hitting your cows, hitting your property. Hit all of that to try to say, wake up. You're dealing with Yahweh, the God of creation. Don't make me do this to you. I don't want to destroy you. So that's how this starts. That's the first trumpet. The second trumpet, Revelation 8, 8 through 9, what is this? What happens when this trumpet is blown? 
What do you got? Revelation 8, 8 through 9. A mountain burning with fire. A mountain burning with fire. And what happens to the mountain? This is key, especially in light of the first five verses. Okay, what's that all about? Sometimes in the Bible, nations are described as mountains. True? Yes, whatever you say. Yeah, yeah, true. So, Isaiah chapter 2, God's going to establish the church from Mount Zion. This is cool, I think. This is important for what happens with these Christians. And sometimes we say, well, this is metaphorical and what Jesus taught is true. But remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter uh, 21? He says, you have faith like a mustard seed, and you pray, you'll say to God, remove this mountain and be cast where? These Christians live to see it happen. They prayed, Revelation 8, 1 through 5, and a mountain was literally cast into the sea. The Romans are that mountain that are going to be cast into the sea based on God's judgment. It was in response to their prayers. They lived out exactly what Jesus said would happen for people that prayed in faith. The Romans are cast into the sea, so to speak, as they are punished for their sins. Okay, it says in verse number 9, a third of the living creatures of the sea died, a third of the ships were destroyed. That relates probably back to a plague in Exodus as well, when the Nile was stinking with blood, Exodus 7, 23-21. The third angel blew his trumpet, and what do you have in 10 and 11? What was the plague there? The stars. What does that refer to? Stars falling, um, I think it says the moon not giving its light or something along, that, along those lines later on. What does that refer to? We've talked about this several times. Whenever you see stars, moon turning to blood, sun darkening, what does that typically refer to in the Bible, especially in this type of literature? What is being described? I see some people mouthing some stuff. But it's apocalyptic language. Apocalyptic language to describe what? What's happening when you hear that type of stuff happening? Sun and moon and all of that. End of their order. End of their order, just say something bad, okay? Just say something bad for some people, okay? That'll work too. All right, so something bad is going to happen, and that's what this judgment is all about. Um, it says that they are, verse 11, the name of the star that was cast into the sea is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. This is a reversal of what happened at Mara in Exodus 15. The Israelites come out of Egypt. And you remember, they come into bitter water, and what does God do with that water? He makes it what? Sweet. This water is struck, and it turns into wormwood, which is just a word that means something bitter. It's, from, it's produced from a plant that trickles down and makes everything bitter. Again, none of this happened literally. It's just the punishment on Rome, and John's describing how their world, their economy, and everything's going to be upended. And in our minds, if you're like, this is kind of confusing, I don't know how all this works, all you should be thinking about, for the most part, is remember what God did to the Egyptians. He plundered them with the plagues and was trying to say, you will know the God of Israel when this is all said and done. That's just being replayed in the time of the Romans. They're being punished. Shadona, you got a question? Or something? Okay, go ahead. Is it always a third of the people Yeah, I think so. There is one time where he's going to say a great, a great many of the people, and I think it's just a common language to say, and even the third, I don't think is John's calculate. Remember, numbers in Revelation are kind of funny. He's just saying the destruction is not told. That's what John's trying to let us know. What's happening here is not complete. And then the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and there's more darkness and destruction that's taking place as a result of that. The sun won't shine, and the moon won't give its light. And then the last thing that happens in Revelation chapter 8 and verse 13, Rachel read this 
I looked and heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. All right, so who, who is the woe directed towards and why is that important? Who are these three woes for? The inhabitants of the earth, which is a key phrase in the book of Revelation. Here are the verses. If this, if they're, they're on your sheet there. You see them. Chapter 3, verse 10, 8 through 13, 11 through 10, 13, 14, and there are some others. In the book of Revelation, John looks at the world from two perspectives. Even though Christians live in the Roman Empire, there are those in heaven, faithful Christians, and that's where you're going. But then there's what's called inhabitants of the earth, and that's John's way of just talking about the normal people, the non-saved individuals. God's wrath is being poured out on the inhabitants of the earth. That's important because you might think about the Romans that persecute Christians. It's a part of them. But it's also anybody that hitches their wagon to the Romans. So other surrounding nations that have joined in with the empire. Later, John's going to talk about those that have the mark of the beast on their hand. They've thrown in their lot. They might not be directly persecuting Christians, but they're part of this inhabitants of the earth. They've just gone along with the world. Woes are coming to them. John mentions three. Okay, chapter 9. And I'll just read the... Let's just read the whole chapter all in one fell swoop. So then we'll get down to the end. Or I'll do the first 11 verses. Let's start there. And then the fifth angel blew his trumpet. I saw a star falling from heaven to earth. He was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit. And from the shaft rose smoke like smoke of a great furnace. The sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft, and then from the smoke came locusts on the earth. They were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. If you write in your Bible or something there, you probably want Revelation 7, 1 through 4. Remember, the children of God are what in their foreheads? Sealed. So whatever you're going to read about is not for them. Verse 5. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. In those days, people would seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair was like women's hair. Their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe is past, and behold, there are two woes still to come. All right, so the fifth trumpet blast, and a star falls from heaven. Some people think this star that fell from heaven is who? Take your guess. Satan. Maybe. Maybe not. Okay? could be just another one of the messengers. Remember, John's not going in chronological order. I don't think it's Satan, but either way, whoever it is, they're acting in accordance with God's will. This individual, this star falls from heaven, and what is he given? Verse number one. Key to the bottomless pit or the abyss. When you read that word abyss, what do you think it means? What is that, the abyss? Somebody says, hell, place of darkness. Yeah, it's used a lot in the Bible, and it means some of all of that. It's a place associated with the dead and hostile powers of the world, of the netherworld for them, the realm of the dead. You've seen Hercules before, Hades, right? Okay, great. That's what this probably represents, something along those lines, the realm of the dead. 
What's coming up out of this pit, out of this realm of the dead? What's coming up out of it? What does John see? Locusts, and they behave like what? Like scorpions. What do you know about locusts from the Bible? It stands for destruction. Whenever you find locusts in Scripture, they destroy. The book of Joel, of course, you think about the book of Exodus. They always represent destruction. And in this case, bad things are happening. They're being destroyed. They're begging to die because they're being tormented. And now, the, again, chapter 9 is the transition. Now we're dealing with people suffering. They're begging to die, but what won't happen to them? Imagine the contrast between being a Roman that's suffering so bad that you want death and Paul saying, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. These people want to die because they think it will put them out of their misery. And Paul saying, when I die, I'm going to go to glory. There's a contrast between these lifestyles. Um, the destruction is not complete. How many people are destroyed in this? Or who is destroyed? Those were not sealed. Yeah, how long were they allowed to do this in verse number 5? For five months. What does that tell you? God's still holding his hand back. He's still trying to give them an opportunity to come to their senses. Even this punishment is not, I know it sounds bad, and it is. And this whole language about women's hair, lion's teeth, it's a symbolic way of saying ferocious creatures. Now, were these literal locusts? I don't believe so. And there's some stuff in history that people try to connect to maybe armies that were sent against the Romans. All that's possible. All I know is it sounds bad for the Romans, very bad. And punishment is coming on them like locusts, and it's going to devour a large multitude of people in order to bring them to the reality that God is against them and punishing them for how they treated his people. All right. Then there is, in verse 7 through 12, the locusts fiercely rushing into battle. And that's the first world that is passed. They have a king over them, verse 11. Um, the angel of the bottomless pit, his name in Hebrew is Abaddon. In Greek, he is called Apollyon. And some people think this verse carries a reference to the Greek god Apollo, but we can't be sure. Um, what do you think is being communicated by this first woe? These, these locusts coming out like scorpions, what do you think this means for people? When John says at the end, hey, the first woe was passed, but there's still two more to come. What do you think? This should be saying to Romans and Christians. What does that mean? What was that? There's more to come. I mean, that sounds bad, but John says there are two more woes on the way. There's more to come. All right. 13 through 21. And we'll be able to say we did it. All right. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet. I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who have been prepared for the hour, day, month, and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice times 10,000. Um, I heard their number. In Greek, this isn't a real number. It just means a bunch, okay? So some people have tried to count this up and do the math. John's point is a bunch of them came out the troops, okay? And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and sapphire and of sulfur. The heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. Here are the plagues. By the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. Here's the key to the whole chapter 8 and chapter 9, right here. You've been lost, 20 and 21, these are your verses. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works 
the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. The chapter ends with the sixth trumpet, of course. The horses come out to destroy. It describes people on horses, and then John just shifts back to horses. They're the ones pouring out the destruction. They're being used by God to trample these wicked individuals that are in opposition to him. Verse 17 is the only verse in the book where John actually describes what's happening to him as a vision, where he says, I saw this in my vision, though the whole book is called a vision or revelation. And then in 20 and 21, though all of this happens, they don't repent. Question, why don't these people repent, even though God's done all of this to stir up their world? Hits their vegetation, their livestock, their economy. You saw a third of your countrymen be destroyed and suffer terribly, and you say, well, I'm just going to keep doing what I want to do. Why would that happen? What was that? Hearts were hard? Yes, that's probably a big part of this. 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says some people have their conscience seared with a hot iron. Okay, so maybe their hearts are hard. What else? Why wouldn't you repent if all of this stuff was happening around you? Why not? Dig in their heels further and refuse to repent. Yeah, that's probably true. Arrogant, yes. The reality is God has blessed everybody in the world with free will. And once you get this concept, it might make you sorrowful because this is just a reality. Like, I can't believe God would do this. But it will relieve you of a lot of heartache. God has given everybody in the world free will. And the sad reality is everybody will not use that free will to serve God. And people in the world will do things that break your heart, that trouble your mind, and that utterly confuse you. And there's nothing God can do about it, so to speak, because he's giving people free will. Here's the reality. No free will, no love. You've got to let people choose. And God loves people enough to let them choose. And Revelation 9, 20 and 21 says, and a host of other Bible verses, there are some people, no matter what. And you've got people in your life like this. And I hope Revelation 9, 20 through 21 kind of provides some solace for you because you're like, what else can I do? God's empty heaven of its resources on these people in their life. We don't care what you say. We're not repenting. There are people like that. And there's nothing you can do about it. And Revelation 19 says some people are just that stubborn and they'll have to suffer for all eternity or feel, realize that they were finally wrong. And even then, they'll be in their rebellion. C.S. Lewis says that in the end, everybody gets what they want. Those who say to God, your will be done. God says, come and be with me. And those who continue to swat his hand, finally here said to them, you wanted it this way, your will be done. And God lets people choose. That's what you have in Revelation chapter 9. We probably won't like that, but once you realize people have free will, and you can't change people. You can't make them. They'll give you some sort of peace because once you've done all you can do, that's all you can do. And Revelation 9 teaches that. Okay, hearing and keeping Revelation 8 and 9. Quickly to the close. Number one, never assume because heaven seems silent that heaven is sleeping. There was silence for half an hour, and then God just starts rolling, trumpet after trumpet after trumpet. If you feel like God has been silent in your life, you probably are mistaken. Doesn't mean he's going to answer the way you want. Doesn't mean he gives us everything we want. But you've got to learn to trust God. And just continue to pray and cry out to God and realize that heaven is involved. Psalm 121 says, He that keeps you will not sleep or slumber. Heaven is never sleeping. 
God is wide awake. And if we can't see how he's working yet, we should be saying something great's on the horizon, or maybe I haven't come to full grips with all that God's doing just yet, but I've thrown in my lot with him, and I'm going to trust him. And Revelation teaches that. These people aren't just reading it. They were actually suffering and wanted immediate relief. And John says it's coming soon, but not right away. Second, prayer is powerful. Prayer moves heaven on our behalf. It works for these Christians, and it works for us. It never is meant to suggest that we get exactly what we want, but it often provides exactly what we need. If you knew what God knew, you would ask for exactly what God gives. He always gets it right, and prayer is powerful. And so there are probably things in all of our lives, if we're on, even if you think, oh, I know, I love this. Prayer is my thing. I really got prayer. I'm assuring you, Johnny Ramsey said, no man's ever gotten all that he could from God. I don't think any of us is, and this isn't to guilt you, it's to encourage you, it's a deeper fellowship with God. I'm sure there are crevices of your heart and life that you haven't allowed God to touch because you won't pray about it. Your business, your relationships, your mindset, your stresses, your anxieties, even your success, and you just kind of don't bring those, even if you think you're really good at prayer, I'm sure we're not praying as much as we should in light of what God will do on our behalf and how he can shake up our world. He's already doing it, he's done great things, but I'm sure he's sitting in heaven saying, I can pour out so much more. We are under asking, not over asking. And Revelation teaches us that. God sends plagues to save people, never to ultimately destroy them. It's true in Egypt. It's true here. It's true throughout the Bible. Plagues are sent to awaken people so God doesn't have to destroy them. I know that's true because if God wants to destroy you, he just could. Ask Nadab and Abihu, Uzzah, Ananias and Sapphira, Korah, Dathan and Abiram. He could. So why these slow stages? Why this slow windup? You've seen this in the store. Mom says to child, put that snicker bar back. Johnny says no. Mom says 10, 9. Why count down? Just go smack Johnny. Well, the reason why, listen, the reason why is because it's a, she doesn't want to do it. We can talk about parenting philosophy another time. But the wind-up is to say, don't make me think God's winding up. One trumpet, two trumpet. Why not just blast the Romans? Plagues that God sends are always meant to save and never to destroy. Sin always makes life bitter and not better. That star wormwood is passed into the sea, and it's symbolic of the life that the Romans would enjoy as long as they were in rebellion to God. Sin always makes your life bitter, never better. Nobody's ever committed a sin and in the end said, you know what, my life's better because I chose it. Never happens. Always turns out worse than we would have thought. And um, I think there may be two more. Some people never choose to repent. And just remember, though all chaos and hell breaks out in the world, the sealed are safe. These plagues are not on God's people, just like in the plagues in Egypt. Goshen was saved, life was in Israel's house. No matter what happens, Christians then and now are safe as God works out his punishment and justice in the world. All right, thanks for a good Bible class. Chapter 10 next week. If you have any questions, feel free to ask me, email me, text me. I hope um, we continue making through and y'all get something out of this. Appreciate it.